Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and Military History podcast on the New Books Network. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. One of the most gripping episodes of the First World War is the Gallipoli Campaign. It's a well-worn story, uh, often repeated in book and film, of a misguided attempt to knock the Ottoman Empire out of the war, thereby opening up a direct channel to the Russian Empire through the Dardanelles, and undermining the southern flank of the Central Powers. Throughout its many accounts, however, one area that is consistently treated as a footnote is the actual evacuation of the British, Anzac, and French positions on the peninsula. Beginning in late November 1915 and running through the first weeks of January 1916, our guest, historian Peter Hart, seeks to remedy this in his new book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, published by Living History, a new imprint from Matt McLachlan Battlefield Tours. Peter's a well-published historian, and he specializes in the First World War and has 39 years' experience as the chief oral historian at the Sound Archive of the Imperial War Museum in London, where he still resides today. And Peter, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant to be here. I've, I've been looking forward to this, Bob. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful how you can talk to people right across the globe. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Um, and, you know, thanks to our, our online solutions, we're able to do more of that now. So I look forward to talking to you for a while. And, you know, your work really, really is at the core, I think, of the new historiography in the First World War. You know, this, this includes your 2011 book, Gallipoli. Why did you return to this campaign a decade later? Well, it's 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 funny. It's it's be, well. Firstly, I'm I'm a working author, so because Matt Matt McLaughlin asked me to, <laughs> he, he asked me whether there was any project, a small project for a, a smallish book that I'd like to do. And I've always been absolutely intrigued by the story of the evacuation. I mean, when when I, but you don't have space for it in a, a single volume book. And in fact, it's this that's triggered my. My great belief that the way forward for Gallipoli studies is not more endless, more single volume books. They all become the same. Mine, uh, everybody else's, they're, they're all much of a muchness because if you compress a story too far, there's no detail. There's no, everything gets a bit samey. So I'm very keen on, on, on books on specific aspects. And this is the first. I may well do one on second Krithia or third Krithia. Uh, I'm hoping someone will do something on, on the French military operations at Gallipoli. Uh, and that's where the future lies. I mean, the Australians have been doing this for a while. There's been several books on the neck or, or, or uh, things like that. But I, I think that's the way forward. So I'm just part of a process, I hope. Yeah, you're quick to identify the whole campaign at Gallipoli as being born of this peculiarly English form of hubris. It's hard to disagree with that. You know, as you talk about there being no shortage of books on the subject, you all seem to to return to that point, I think. It's a commonality. But I got to say, isn't there also another historical context here of the British preference for for peripheral strategies that have sustained the British since at least the Napoleonic Wars? I think these are two different things. Uh, the, the, the particular form of hubris is, uh, is is British arrogance. I'm sure Australians would be delighted to hear me say that the British are staggeringly arrogant then and now. Uh, we, we, we think we're exceptional. We think that the sun shines out of our arse. Uh, we think we're special. And uh, the, the rest of the world doesn't. Uh, in particular, when you come up against the brutal realities of conflict, this idea that one British lad's worth four Turks becomes a cropper. It comes a real cropper when actually it's probably the other way around, if anything. And I don't actually like these uh, these nationalistic uh, tropes, if you like. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, military skill is based on uh, training 
and belief. So you, you train someone uh, so that they're better and then you tell them they're better and they'll be better. Uh, it's not because you're British or English or Scottish or Australian. It's something else. Uh, it, uh, and I think this is what leads the British into trouble. They think if they just get ashore, the Turks will fold, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll retreat and it'll be easy. Now, the overall thing about the campaign, uh, you see that, yes, the British tradition, actually, I'd say up to the Napoleonic Wars and after, is always to operate on the periphery. Uh, it's how we get our empire. Uh, we go around the, using our naval strength uh, and our very small, highly professional army to basically steal everybody else's colonies. It's one reason why we very rarely get a decision at football uh, in the World Cup. And I don't blame them either. People get fed up of us. But we, we have this tradition of, of operating on the margins, trying to avoid continental warfare. And when we get involved in continental warfare, like we did in the Napoleonic age, we tend to try and pay our way out of it. So we don't, I mean, even at the Battle of Waterloo, which I've been doing some work on recently for a podcast, it's interesting. It's not a British army. It's certainly not an English army. It's actually half and half British and German. And then there's the Prussians. So we're actually only about a quarter of the troops fighting at Waterloo. And that tends to be the way we like to pay other people to do our fighting for us. Now, you may notice, I may or may not approve, <laughs> empires are not good things, really, are they? Uh, it's a terrible way of behaving, but it, it, it is effective. But in the First World War, the Great War, everything is different because you can't make the war into something you want it to be. We can't go around just stealing German colonies. If We, do, we can't go around with these vainglorious schemes to knock Turkey out of the war because the reality is that Germany is occupying a great chunk of France. It's got a mailed fist pointing at Paris. It's got control of some of the most important industrial regions. It's got its foot almost on the Belgian coast. There's only Ypres to stop and get into the, uh, the, the, the ports, uh, which would give them some control over the channel. These are things that cannot be allowed and Gallipoli, yes, of course it's... And, you know, you could be sat in your club with your in a nice safe armchair saying, yeah, well, it'll be a jolly good to knock out the... Uh, yeah, I'll knock out the... Uh, those Turkish fellows. But the reality is the Germans have got their foot round the French throat and they are our only big ally uh, that, that, other than the Russians. And, and we can't help the Russians. There's no there's no sea route without knocking Turkey out. It's easy. Do you see what I mean? You're in a circle there. So it's my view that the reality is it was always going to be Western Front first. Western Front is the most important. And our army was not very big. Even in 1915, although it was growing, it still wasn't very big. And the Germans have something like uh, 92 divisions on the, uh, on the, the Western, Western Front. Front. And the French, they need our help. I hope that answers. I do go on a bit. Just tell me. <laughs> no, that's 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 fine. I mean, you're that's the whole idea of this podcast is to give you, as the author, the time you want to discuss something that you normally wouldn't get in an interview or another media outlet. I understand what you're saying about you know how problematic the entire concept was from the start, and you know how it is a, an end run perhaps around the Western Front for individuals in the British establishment who would rather not pay that cost. Yes. But let's, 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 let's turn it in the other, on the other side then. You know, to what degree was the outcome of Gallipoli a foregone conclusion given the resistance of Western Front proponents in the army? I'll be honest with you. Uh, it is a foregone conclusion. In my, I mean, my first book ever was uh, was the defeat at Gallipoli, <laughs> which uh, sort of tells you where I'm coming from. Uh, it wasn't a close run thing. Uh, it was never a close run thing. A lot of things that people have said are close run things aren't. When they get to the top of a ridge and they go, "Oh well, we've got the top of a ridge." There's usually a Turkish division coming up the other side of the ridge, and there's only a. I'm thinking of Hill Q there, the Gurkhas on Hill Q. They're always going on right. and on about it, but there's a division coming up the other side. Uh, they, these things are, are not close run. It, it, it's a combination of things. It's uh, We don't have the proper resources. We uh, give away surprise. As, as Haig said, Douglas Haig, the commander uh, later on on the Western Front, uh, why are we advertising it like an American cinema show? What? Why? Mm -hmm. um, so there's no surprise. I mean, if you think of your, your, your Clausewitzian rules of war, uh, concentrate on the main front. Um, surprise. Uh, 
oh, uh, force generation. We generated mm -hmm. a, a force that was totally inappropriate, not enough artillery, uh, too many untrained troops, the Australians, the British territorials, uh, untrained, too, too many troops without enough artillery. Uh, the Royal Naval Division had no artillery. Uh, this is in modern warfare. This is madness. And later it gets worse when you get to the Subla campaign. You start sending territorial and uh, Kitchener Army divisions that are barely trained. And people always bang on about the 29th Division. Oh, the 29th Division, a regular division. They weren't a division. They've been scraped up, and I use the term correctly, from around the empire. They've been brought home to England. They've been put in a division. Uh, they've been given some territorial artillery, and they hadn't trained or operated or worked or exercised or anything as a division at all. And if you know anything about military operations, you know that that, therefore, is not a division ready for war. They would become good. The Australians, great potential, not properly trained. They would become good, fantastic potential. But they weren't ready in 1915, but not by a long chalk. Well, I mean, uh, and this, this damns Winston Churchill and the rest of the British War Cabinet even more then for pushing them so hard for this. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, Absolutely agree with you. The thing about Winston Churchill is I used to have a, a real down on Winston Churchill for this. It was uh, I really did blame him. But do you know what? As you get older, you mature. And I now realise that he persuaded the whole war cabinet. Now, <laughs> so whose fault's that? Everybody in that war cabinet had a say. But including everybody, Lord Kitchener, for that including matter. Lord Kitchener and Fisher. And yes, they, Kitchener and Fisher said they were against it later on or or, 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 or or that's not quite right. But they had reservations about the way it was done, if you see what I mean. That this isn't an excuse. Uh, it is an excuse for any of those ministers who were present and who voted it through. They were looking for an easy option. And what were they? Their politicians, Australian politicians, British politicians. What do they always look for, right wing or left wing? I'll be honest with you. They look for the easy way. They look for the painless way. They look for a way that avoids difficult decisions. Now, the Western Front is the most difficult decision, the most difficult thing in the whole world at the time. Let's dodge it. Oh, there's Gallipoli. Oh, well, let's go there. And they shouldn't have done it. Uh, and it's that, that decision. And yes, who can stand up against a man like Winston Churchill? He's brilliant. He's incisive. He's got a personality that just smashes everything away in front of him. Uh, the sort of person who goes into a room and you can be thinking, I'm going to argue with him, I'm going to argue with him, I'm going to argue with him, and then suddenly you think, why have I agreed with him? But nevertheless, just because he's brilliant doesn't excuse the rest of the cabinet. So, yes, Winston Churchill has a substantial culpability, but he's not the only one by a long chalk. And Kitchener should have known better. Right from the start, Kitchener should have known better. And Fisher, well, Fisher's half mad at the time. Well, I, yeah. I, I think he's past his sell-by date. It's a cruel expression. <laughs> and one day you'll be hearing me on a podcast you'll say, Pete's gone past his sell-by date, and that happens to us all. <laughs> I've got to ask about the, the epigram. So normally I don't get that nitpicky with talking about a book. You know, uh, for, the, for our listeners, the, an epigram is the introductory quotes that we see at the beginning of a chapter. I normally take these in and move on. But you start with this one, this quote from the major associated with that's the That's Major Force. Claude Foster. I looked him up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just amazing. I swear, I mean, I'm not going to repeat the quote. I'll let our, our listeners read about it. But this comes right out of Black Adam. It, you know, it's, it's so absurd. I, I know what you mean, the, the, the comic melodrama that the – the sort of pathos, the, the it's over the top, reflected on the, oh, my God, it's all so terrible. Oh, we're all going to end up dead. Oh, my God. Oh, God, God. You know, it's all like that. Um, yeah. I'll be honest with you. It is a great quote, but I looked up some other quotes from him, and he is yeah. an over-the-top figure. He, so he, he's a true believer then. He, yes, and he, he 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 believes in the cause. He thinks that uh, they're involved in a crusade, but he thinks that Gallipoli is a hopeless mess. He gets jaundice, he gets ill, the conditions are awful, and he's just and he can't see any way forward of winning. And he just gets it's just a fantastic sort of mishmash of. And he is a, a very expressive and emotional man. And and sometimes, uh, you know, that is nice because a lot of them are very buttoned up in 1915. Oh, certainly, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, well, stiff up for a lip and all that. Yeah. Yes. And so you can read. I, I mean, when I'm reading, um, I go through hundreds of documents and some documents you, you ask them for them. I do most of my research at the War Museum. You, you ask them to bring documents in. You get it out and you look at it in about 10 minutes. You, th- you, you know, there's 500 letters. And after about 10 minutes, you think, no, this has got nothing because the bloke can't express themselves. Uh, they've got no emotion. They just say, and they end up with formats. So for me, Claude Foster was a great laugh. Edgewise <laughs> <laughs> in the epigram. That was my wife's idea. She said, why don't you put a, an exciting quote at the start of a chapter just to draw people in? And and she's in publishing. She worked for uh, another publisher, and uh, she uh, it was good advice. Oh, she she won't have me because all authors hate all publishers. So she won't have, she won't let me work for them. <laughs> that could be that could be the end of a marriage. I it do could be very much so. Yeah. Well, poor old Matt's coping now with because uh, uh, the the book's delayed by uh, yeah. the terrible problems at COVID. I don't blame Matt at all, but I know a lot of authors would. <laughs> Looking at some other persons in in the campaign, yeah, yeah. Should we view General <laughs> Sir Ian Hamilton sympathetically? I mean, there's been no surfeit of accounts written since Alan Moorhead that paint him as a tragic figure who wanted to make the best out of the situation. But you seem to take a less than positive view in the very short time he appears in your narrative here. But yes, I am actually, If you, in my Gallipoli book, I'm more sympathetic to him. Because, but the problem is that he gets worse as the campaign goes on. And in the evacuation book, of course, he only appears at the start in October before he's sacked. The thing about Sir Ian Hamilton is, I'll just let, let's set the scene for, for our listeners a bit. Firstly, he the Germans considered considered him the most experienced soldier in the world. Uh, On paper, he, he was. He'd fought at Majuba Hill, where he nearly won the VC. He nearly won the VC in the Boer War. He'd been the British observer in the uh, uh, Russo-Japanese War. He he was a brilliant soldier. Uh, he he'd got personal courage. He was competent. He was imaginative. He was intelligent, empathetic. He was he was fabulous in many ways, but. By the time we get to Gallipoli, he's not cut out for the job. He can't face up to Kitchener, his old boss. He can't tell him the reality. He also, when in any plan he has anything to do with, he overcomplicates. So when you have the landing, instead of just having a landing, one big landing and punching through with perhaps one diversion, he has about four or five, well, there's five landings at Helles. There's, then there's yeah. the, the Anzac landing, then there's the, the diversion at Belair, there's French landing. Uh, at the other side of the strait, and then there's the French diversion at Bazika Bay. Uh, it's all too much, and, and and none of the parts add up to a whole. They're all bitty. None of them can support each other properly. They, they stand alone, and therefore they fall because the Turks are operating, basically, let's see what happens, and then and go and sort it out. And he, you might think, well, he made a mistake. But but the thing is that during the August offensive, he does exactly the same thing again. A stupid diversion at Hellas. It costs three and a half thousand casualties. He, he has a, a diversion at Lone Pine. He has a, a ridiculously complicated attack. Then he has a Suvla landings. And it all just the bloody same again. Um, it, and, and this is the problem with Hamilton. And we've already talked about it. Was he past his prime? He, he did suffer from dysentery. He was on the island of Imbros. He was suffering badly from dysentery. Now, uh, he was, how old was he? About 61, 62, I can't remember. I'm 65. When I go to Glipley, I'm fine. But if I get the slightest trace of an upset stomach, it, it really knocks the legs off me. Well, that's a slightly upset stomach. That's not dysentery. So yeah. can you imagine what it's like for a 65-year-old man without proper medication on at Gallipoli with dysentery? And it, it must have impacted. So I am sympathetic to him, but he didn't do very well. He couldn't have done much worse, to given the fact he was a competent general. I know that's, that's, that's a, that may not make sense, but that's sort of how I feel. It's very complicated explaining to people how you feel about Hamilton. I do like him as a figure. I do think he did badly. Uh, do you see what I mean? I'm sorry, I, I can't. I, I mean, if you didn't understand what I've just said, I think that would be fair enough. <laughs> no, I understand perfectly. I understand perfectly, and I, I can think about other similar characters. It's funny. I'm teaching the course on the American Civil War now, <laughs> and we're just we just went through George McClellan in the Peninsula, and there's a lot that can be said about George McClellan that he deserves 
being lambasted for. But at parts of the peninsula, considering that he was sick with malaria, you do have to give him the benefit of the doubt, I think. You have to give them some slack and also give him some credit for his long and glorious career. Um, Certainly. Uh, and in Hamilton's case. In Hamilton's, in Hamilton's case. Oh, no, yes, sorry. In <laughs> Hamilton's case. Sorry, I do. Yeah. Um, it's like Sir John French. I mean, he did terribly in, on the Western Front in 1914 and 15, but he had done quite well in the past in the Boer War. He was seen as a thrusting man of action. Uh, it, it, it's just part of life. Uh, as you, uh, They call it the Peter Principle. You promote it to the level of your own incompetence. Now, I'm not sure that's the case with Hamilton, but he is not operating in a competent manner. He's, he's too... He's overcomplicating things. In a sense, he's trying to be too clever. And I think in military history, you often realize that simple is best. Well, in a place like Gallipoli, especially, too, I mean, there's just so much room that allows you to be clever. Yes. We understand just what it looks like on a map and and the the terrain. There's not much, many options open to Hamilton. Well, if simple would have been best, just land everybody between uh, in the original landing between Suvla Bay and where a place called the Comatel is now, which is just past uh, Gabatepe, uh, and just land everything there and thrust across to the main objective, the Kilid Bahia Plateau. You won't hear the word Kilid Bahia in most Gallipoli uh, accounts because we never get anywhere near it. But that is actually the massif that overlooks the Narrows, and that is the overall objective of both uh, Helles and Anzac. We never get within three miles of it. Well, let's go on back to people and yeah, ask yeah. about another. Uh, what sort of man was his replacement, General Sir Charles Monroe? And there you go. Much less likable. <laughs> it's it's just, I don't know. You know, it's, it, it's quite difficult to talk about him because he's just, uh, I mean, Hamilton wrote book after book. He expressed himself beautifully. He was emotional. He was intelligent. So Charles Monroe is logical. And what you what you see is what you get. He's not dissimilar in some ways to Haig. They express themselves very well. They're essentially staff officers who become generals. They can explain what they're doing on paper. If you read his, uh, after he was there, he came, he saw, he capitulated. He saw all three places in a day, I think it was, uh, uh, Antac, Helles and Suvla, and then he wrote his report. And you might say, well, well, is that enough? Well, the problem was he, he interviewed everybody when he was at, each base, and then he wrote an analytical report that said there is no option. And if you read his report, if you read what he wrote, you think, yes, he's absolutely right. And the other thing about him is he sticks to his guns. He doesn't tell Kitchener what Kitchener wants. Kitchener does not, Kitchener does not want to evacuate. What does Monroe tell him? We've got to evacuate. Kitchener says, no, 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 no. Come and see for yourself came and saw for himself. Kitchener wavers backwards and forwards, but Monroe always maintains his sense of purpose. We have to get off. I think he saved thousands of lives by his determination. They did have to get off because the German heavy artillery, well, Austro-Hungarian it was to be precise, uh, was coming. Uh, the the munitions supplies, which, which would make the Turkish artillery more deadly, they were already arriving, and we'd have been just blown off it in 1916. Uh, and as you point out, winter's coming as well. Well, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 the, the Turkish winter gets worse in January, February. I mean, they, they only just got off uh, before the storms start hitting in January and February, the big storms. Yeah. Um, they did have one storm anyway in the, the end of November. Yes, I did use winter's coming. You, you could tell when I wrote the book because that was just after, <laughs> <laughs> after watching Game of Thrones. And I think it's I I think when you write military history, it's a miserable business. You 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 must know that. And sometimes you could just have your own little joke. So yes, I did call one chapter or or one something winter's coming <laughs> and then reference uh, it. Now he, that my mind didn't go straight to Of course it did. Star, winter's you know, coming. Yeah. <laughs> I was expecting Matt to edit that out. I, I used to put song titles in as well. And people say uh, it's a serious business war. It's full of death and murder. And you say, yes, it is. And I know that. And something has to keep me cheerful. And if the editors don't spot it and take it out, then hard luck. <laughs> <laughs> but be, be careful. The book hasn't fully been released yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you might get me. No, no Matt's, uh, Matt's a very sympathetic editor. Yeah. He was. Uh, well, he's another historian. I mean, one of the reasons I get on well with 
Matt, is uh, because although he's a, in, in Australia, he's a public figure, uh, much like Dan Snow in England, like, like Dan, he tries his best to be fair, to, to, to actually recite the history and not to go the populist way that some Australian historians have gone, who I am not going to name. <laughs> but you might be able to think of one of them. I'm not going to comment, but yeah. Yeah. What was the Navy's position on an evacuation? The Royal Navy, the senior service, without them, nothing would have happened. The Navy are at the heart of everything to do with the evacuation. They are the evacuation in many ways. And I am conscious now, but the Navy are absolutely at the heart of it. But there's a group, and it's round a chap called Commodore uh, Roger Keyes, who's a, who was chief of staff of the Navy, of the the, the squadron. And he persuaded Rosalind Weems, um, who was a senior admiral and indeed was in charge for a while, uh, that they might be able to make a last-ditch dash through through the, the straits. Now, to the if only the army had just do a bit of attacking. Now, the army just thought this was barking mad. The, uh, Bell, the chief of staff to Monroe, called it the swan song of the lunatics. But that's what it was. Uh, and people to this day will say, well, they've got destroyer minesweepers. They, perhaps they could have got through. Well, perhaps they could. But, you know, those ships have an awful lot of people on board them. And last time they tried, they lost a third of them and got nowhere. And uh, the thing is, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth the risk. Um, and the army couldn't have made a simultaneous attack anyway. So the Navy, very unusually for the Royal Navy, had gone completely bonkers. Well, no, sorry. Uh, a section of the Royal Navy Higher Command had gone completely bonkers uh, at the time and were mad keen to try this, uh, this dash through the straits. The Admiralty back home were having none of it, and nor was the usual senior commander, uh, Admiral John de Roebuck, who was, uh, uh, he'd gone home when we mistook over briefly, and he came back, and he was having none of it, because he, he'd been there on March 18th when they tried last time, and he said, no way, we're not doing it. And the Admiralty said, yeah, no way, uh, on your bike. Uh, they didn't use those words, but uh, I think it, you know, I think it, you can tell, and, and, and do you know, the, the thing that, impresses me is that Weems and Keyes then fell into line and performed brilliantly in the evacuation. And that is a truer sign to me of the Royal Navy than this this irrationality that, that briefly sort of raises its head. Just to give an example, that the army was saying, can't you stop these, uh, these heavy guns and um, I mean, munitions getting to the peninsula? And the Navy said, yeah. Yeah, we can. We could. There's a there's a bridge uh, in the Belair Straits. Now we can blow that up, and they send a, a battleship and a monitor, and they blow it up. And and that's the sort of thing the Navy can do. The Navy are great. And I, I, I we had a book launch. It was a very ambitious book launch about four months ago, <laughs> and we had Admiral Jeremy Larkin uh, uh, there to talk about it. And uh, and he drew out the point that the Navy is always there for the Army. Uh, of course it is, and uh, it's. It, it, it is the senior service. You know, you know, early on that one of the concerns that Kitchener has, and well, not just Kitchener, but other people too, was that, you know, if you evacuate, what is this going to do to the empire's Muslim subjects in India and Africa? You know, we forget that the Ottoman Sheikh Ul Islam, you know, he had a fatwa calling for a jihad against the allies. Say an evacuation does go awry say that Monroe's fears are realized. Would this have had an impact on the, the Muslims in the area? It, it's more Hamilton's fears. Monroe also feared that we might lose a, a substantial thing, but he organised to avoid it. It's more Hamilton and uh, politicians back in England, particularly Lord Curzon, who was going on about the hecticums of the slain. Uh, lots, I think that means. Lots of slain. Um now, this is interesting because recently I've been working, uh, just putting together a book proposal on the Sudan, 1890, you know, Egypt, 1882, uh, the Gordon, then the Sudan in 1890. Oh, yeah, okay, Chinese Gordon, yeah. And, and, of course, who's there? Kitchener. And who are they fighting? They're fighting uh, the, the Mahadi revolt called dervishes, which I think is a, a pejorative term now, and I, I'm not sure we should be, I should be using it. The British called the dervishes, and that was a sort of holy war. And Kitchener had seen, I think at Omdurman, there were 50,000, although I think that's an exaggeration, but there, there were up to 50,000 of these warriors coming at them, and a third of them had rifles. Uh, <laughs> the rest of them had, as uh, Blackadder would say, po pointed fruit. 
uh, we had machine guns and artillery and uh, and Enfields. Um, but the, the the point is that there is a potential. If a holy war had blossomed, then India, the Indian mutiny, that Indian mutiny, what, it's 170 India's years war. ago, was it, from now? But it wasn't now, 170 yeah. years ago then, was it? It was 50 years ago. Um, it was within living memory. Uh, Egypt, that was 1898. Well, that that's 17 years before. Who knows about parts of Africa? It could have been a real problem. I understand Kitchener's concern. However, my view is that Kitchener is getting it wrong. The answer is to evacuate successfully because there is no option. And this is what Monroe is continually pointing out to Kitchener. There is no option. The, the Gallipoli campaign has failed. We've been embarrassed in front of our, uh, the empire's Muslim subjects already. Uh, it can only be utterly disastrous if we don't evacuate or evacuate and hopefully we can get away and then claim it's some kind of victory. The British are quite good at that, claiming something's a victory. Uh, uh, Dunkirk, it's happened mm -hmm. on several occasions. Uh, obviously, Dunkirk is in the future from them, but you do understand what I mean. Well, what's the evacuations decided upon? How did the Dardanelles army make their preparations? You know, Was there a preliminary stage? Oh, yes, it, it was brilliantly planned. The politicians couldn't make their minds up at all. And from the time Monroe Hans is reported, which is in October until uh, late October, until December, I think the 7th it is, or 8th, the, the politicians can't make their mind up. They just can't take the responsibility. Took the responsibility to send them in there, didn't they? They, they can't make their minds up. On the, in the meantime, the army being the army and the navy being the navy have set up a joint committee a planning committee, and they're running through the plans. They are planning, planning, planning. And they work out they'll have three stages, a preliminary stage up to where they get permission, where they'll get away units that honestly had to go anyway, uh, get away individuals. They're going to start strimming things back. Then as soon as they've got permission from the government, they go into the intermediary stage where they start to remove units bit by bit. And the idea is it's the collapsing balloon approach. It's the first time I believe it was ever properly used. They go to maintain the front and collapse it behind it. So they gradually, one by one, units are removed until there's just a uh, not many people there. And the final stage is one day or two days where they uh, fundamentally, what they do is they use deception and then last, they creep away uh, in the final. Uh, that's the final stage. It's very, very well planned. It really is well planned. And it's a testament to staff work. People often like to think, the staff, well, our red tabs, blah, blah, sent our lads to death. Yes, they sometimes do that. But without staff work, you're definitely going to your death. Absolutely, definitely. And on the way, you'll probably starve to death, go the wrong way. And uh, when you get there, you'll probably be in the wrong place and, and, and then not be able to get out of it. Uh, because that's what staff work is. Generals can only tell the staff what to do. The staff have to work out how to do it. And this isn't just happening over one or two nights either. I mean, this is a long evacuation. Oh, it's uh, it's ten, it's ten to twelve days. It's it's the preliminary stage is going on from late November. Uh, then the intermediate stage starts on about the eighth or ninth of December. This is the, the Anzac Suvla one, and then they finally leave on the nineteenth twentieth. So it's done slowly, and it, it's concealed. Uh, so they're busy, they're busy building trenches, and they're busy looking as if they're staying. They pretend to land people. They do the evacuations at night. They have pretend landings during the day. They have all the stuff that you've heard about. So they, oh well, the, the thing that's most important and a thing of genius is that the Brigadier General Brudenell White, Chief of Staff at Anzac, introduces silent periods, and this is just brilliant because what they do is. Uh, uh, they uh, they go quiet, and if the Turks come into no man's land, they don't shoot at them. They don't do anything, and uh, and then after after twenty four hours, thirty six hours, forty eight hours, they open fire, and and basically they're teaching them that quiet doesn't mean gone, and it's also a punitive thing. It's like if you right again, this is not something that you should ever do. If you hit a dog on the nose to tell it to or rub a dog's nose in something it's done it shouldn't do. Then it will it will learn a lesson. I, I, these are these are not things that you should do, by the way. But it's a, a, it's an idea of discipline that some people have, and in a way, this is that kind of discipline. What you're doing is saying, <laughs> now, <laughs> if you if you go out where if it's quiet and you go out to no man's land, then you're going to get shot. 
because they haven't really gone. And it's so clever. It's uh, it's it's learned behavior. It's teaching them. They're all doing all that, and they've got these self-loading rifles, self self-firing rifles, which uh, fire themselves, but that only lasts half an hour. The real key is uh, the overall deception, leaving the tents up, uh, leaving everything there, looking as if it's still going, staying busy, marching people around in circles, doing all this. And it's all going on for the best part of two, three weeks. It's an amazing piece of work. And yet the winter, as we mentioned before, the weather almost unravels the whole thing. Well, that's my favorite chapter uh, of the book is the winter chapter. I don't know. I, I, I'd never had the space to cover it properly. I'd never realized how terrible it was. Uh, there's a torrential rainstorm that, that triggers floods and, 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 and it, it, it's torrential. And all those uh, nullers and gullies suddenly become raging torrents 10 12 feet deep and if you've dug your trench you've barricaded the trench across it, it gets swept away men are drowned in the trenches dugouts fill up you can't get out it's terrible uh, the people are swept away corpses everywhere it's just murder oh that's bad what could make it worse what could make it worse bob it freezes absolutely it snows and it freezes and it stays below zero for several days so you're soaking wet and it's below zero, and hundreds die. It, it's it's just, or oh, it's terrible for the Turks as well. But it's oh, yeah. it's just awful, and um, and uh, just yeah, just God. horrendous, painful accounts of of, of people suffering, of, of people discovering corpses clinging together for warmth. Oh dear, it's awful, and and it completely breaks several units. They have to be evacuated early. They're some of the first to go. So, uh, so I mean, I really enjoyed doing that chapter, putting the full amount of detail. I even put a bit of a poem in, and I'm not big on poetry, but uh, the bloke wrote it himself, so I thought I'd give him a chance. <laughs> well, you know, 100 years on, there's nothing wrong with that. 105 years on. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's remarkable as well, because, again, when we think of Gallipoli, and I, you, know, you have to look at the film as much as anything that's been written, we think of it as a summer campaign. We think of it as, you know, broiling heat and, and near tropical conditions. And to learn that there was a brutal winter phase of, you know, winds coming down from the, from the Caucasus steppe. I mean, that's it. Yes. We don't think about that, but it's a, it has a whole new dimension to the campaign. It's continental winter and it's freezing. It's blasted freezing uh, and it's awful. And the storms, remember, there are no harbours. The harbours are makeshift. They're piers and they're, uh, they're rocks bound together. The seas rise and they tear them to bits. Even today, there are lighters on the beaches that, was, that were thrown there during the storm in late November. Uh, and the other storms, because it's not the only storm. It, it's uh, it's an amazing part of the story. I love that piece of the story. What was the general quality and state of the Turkish army on the other side? They're really good. I don't want to over-exaggerate this. They're brilliant in defence. Their musketry is good. Their sniping is brilliant. Uh, I interviewed several people when I was working for the War Museum who uh, used to try and engage them in sniping, and they used to give up after they put bullets through the sniper, you know, the sniping little hole in a sniper's plate. And they, they were excellent shots. Not all of them. I'm saying that their snipers were very good. They're very brave. They're, they're tremendous endurance. Now, that's partly because they live a, a very tough life. Uh, one of the reasons people say that the Turks treated their prisoners bad is because they treated some of the prisoners like they treated uh, their own soldiers badly. And uh, the, the, the soldiers were tough. Uh, really tough. It's a different. It's a different society from British, Australian, or, or even French. Um, it's perhaps not so different from the uh, the colonial forces that fought to Gallipoli. So we had the Indians fighting for us, and then there were the uh, North African fighting for the French. Uh, they they they're similar. What's wrong with the army? They they have no sense of attack tactics other than charge, uh, mass attack. Well, the same happens to them as happens to us. People often go, oh, it's this ridiculous uh, belief in God that's driving them forward. You know, they're, they're, they're Islam and Muslim. Elements. How silly. And you say, what do you think takes those public school boys and those working class English lads forward? Exactly. Their, their belief in our God. And, and sometimes you just think, they, listen to yourself. Just listen to yourself. You know, you, you, you're calling them out for being Islamicists. <laughs> and, and then we're our side of Christians. It, it's just as uh, it, it's two sides of the same coin, as far as I'm concerned. 
So that's quite interesting. There is this perception that they're led by Germans. Uh, they had some very senior, so Limon von Sanders, whose name actually has got, uh, he married a, a Scottish woman. So uh, so he took uh, uh, Sanders, I think, from, uh, from her, her name. Uh, and uh, he was a, a competent general. Uh, the Germans didn't think much of him, but uh, we did. Uh, and there were some other seniors, people like Kannengeiser, on his first name, but uh, he was a colonel, but he was in command of a, a, a well, a division and later a corps, I think. Uh, but there were very few others. What it is is that Turkish officers, like British officers, tended to wear a lighter coloured uniform, and that people think that they're uh, they're German. Uh, so there's this always this thing. If you're ever attacked, they always always say that there's a German officer. Uh, but we know how many. And there's been a book by uh, Klaus Wolf just come out, translated into English. And I read that. I reviewed it for someone. And it, ne- it almost named every one. There weren't many. And there certainly weren't any attached to normal in frontline infantry units. They tended to be machine gun specialists, uh, fortified staff, um, that kind of thing, uh, or sen- very senior positions, but not many of them. The Turkish commanders were good, not just uh, Mustafa Kemal, who was brilliant, I think. I'm, I'm quite a fan of his. But there's also like people like Sefi Gakko, who's a colonel, and he was the man who, who did so brilliantly on the 25th of April at Anzac. He was fantastic. And, and in fact, I thought he was the man of the day, more so than uh, Ataturk. Oh, sorry, no, that's his later name, uh, Kemal, Mustafa Kemal. And so the leadership is, is pretty good, I think. So basically, I think they're good, solid troops, excellent in defence, poor in attack, well-led, uh, well NCO'd, but I don't know much about that. Uh, but I, that's the impression I've got. And I think they're pretty good. There are people who are experts on this. I would mention Ed Erickson as well, who's written several books on the Turkish army. And he's another one who's exploded this idea that um, that it's all German. And do you know why the British like to say that they were all German? They don't want to accept that they were beaten by the Turks. That's it. It's right back to British arrogance. We can't have been beaten by the Turks. We can't have been. They must have been German. Because uh, I don't want to go into too much as to why that would be more acceptable to them, but that's what it is. So there you go. I've got the highest regard for the performance of the Turks. uh, And I'm also very, very keen. We remember that they're not the enemy now. We're we're all on the same side. And and to me, the study of Gallipoli is the study of both sides. Uh, And I tried to reflect that in my Gallipoli book. The, the problem is there's not too many Turkish accounts. And again, I'd, I'd, look, at, I'd look at the work of people like, uh, is it Harvey Broadbent? I can't remember his name. Uh, but people are working in the field. Uh, history, history is not about individuals. It's about a group of people working together and collegiately and, 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 and advancing uh, what we know. Uh, that's my view of it. And I tend to try and be friendly with most historians uh, because we can all learn from each other. Well, you know, speaking towards the idea of it, there being other accounts and other narratives that we deserve to take into consideration. I'm saying this is an American who, you know, is a Western Front person and who acknowledges that what we teach here, what we read here is very much an Anglo-centric view. Of it is, world. yes. We see that in Gallipoli especially. It's what we have is almost exclusively a British and Anzac account. But there's a French component as well. Oh, wow, yes. Yeah, and they fare pretty well, I think, in comparison. Uh, It's my strong feeling that the French, there are two divisions there. They're roughly the same size as the initial Anzac Corps. Two divisions, two full divisions there from the French. They're they're a mixture of colonial and French national troops. Uh, They've got all the artillery they should have, well-trained artillery. And do you know what? They actually sent ammunition with it. Now, the British didn't bother with that sort of thing. We could only fire one shot a day in the worst, in the high summer, one shot per gun a day. The, the, the French have plenty of ammunition because they're a grown-up military country. And, and it's my view that probably they're the most effective military formation there. I don't want to go on to the, the, the best soldiers because that's not what we're talking about or it's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is simply because they've got good, well-trained troops, they've got the right amount of artillery and they know how to use it and they've got enough ammunition. They probably killed and did more damage to the Turks than anybody else. But interestingly, as a mature military nation, when it became hopeless in August, they just stopped. 
They just stop entirely. They start doing archaeology. The French are weird. <laughs> start doing archaeology. Uh, they do. They have a full-on archaeological investigation because there's a there's a, 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 a an old Trojan city where they were, uh, where the uh, Turkish memorial now is, Abide. There was uh, Elias, uh, I think. I, I may have mispronounced the name. There's a whole Trojan city. And they started doing an archaeological dig. They went into live and let live. They didn't shoot at the Turks. They shared wells. They put a flag system so that you knew when to go to the well and when you couldn't go out the well. Uh, and they just lived out the, re- the remaining four months of the campaign, which is, by the way, half the campaign. So overall, not only did they fight hard and effectively, but they had terrible casualties. It's difficult to work out how many they had. They're, they're supposed to have had 12,000 dead, which is two or 3,000 more than the Australians and New Zealanders put together. It uh, doesn't compare to the British 30-odd thousand, but then it's well, not 12, a problem. 12,000 dead out of two divisions. I mean, that, that's unconscionable. It is. Absolutely. Well, I think it includes the bouvet as well. Uh, 600 men on the bouvet went down with all hands uh, in the, on the edge of the right. mud. But the thing about it is... is um, they had terrible, terrible casualties. We're not quite sure how many because uh, 12,000 is official figure, but there's uh, 12,000, 12,500 in the ossuaries at the French cemetery. Then there's the whole cemetery with hundreds more, and then there's a boob. So we're not quite sure. Uh, but what I do know is it was more than the uh, New Zealanders and Australians. Now, this is not a childish competition. It's not, hey, we've had more dead than you have sort of thing. Uh, that's not how it is. But what it is is, don't use it to say the French were the best because they had more dead. That's nonsensical. What I'm saying is the French sacrifice should be remembered. Their, their, their contribution was enormous. And the next book I want to see about Gallipoli is a detailed operational history uh, about uh, about the French. We've had a, a couple of histories from uh, George Cassar. He, I believe he's an American, well-respected American author. Now we want to see operational and personal experience histories just on the French at Gallipoli. I can't wait, but I don't speak French well enough to do it. Which of the beaches do you think was the most difficult to evacuate? Where Where is the, the danger? If we go through them, if you think about it, so the Suva and Anzac. Well, Anzac, the trenches are often within two or three yards of each other, uh, but you've only got a quarter of a mile to go back to the beach. Then at Suvla, the trenches are two or three hundred yards apart, but you've got to go two or three, mile, three, three miles back to the beach. And in some places like uh, K- uh, Kirich Tepe and the Boot, it's bloody rough ground. So you've got mixed problems, which is why you have to fool them that you're not going and then creep away. But I don't think they're the most difficult. The most di- Because in the end, it worked. The most difficult is at Helles, and the most difficult is W Beach because um, that is open to the sea. Uh, they had to use it. They couldn't do it all from V Beach. They had, there are no other suitable beaches. Uh, the X Beach is to beach. Y Beach isn't to beach. S Beach isn't a proper beach. And anyway, it's overlooked. It had to be W and V. B was fine, but there's not enough capacity. They had to use W Beach. But the C comes straight in. And if there's rough weather, it's going to be dangerous. And that is the final story of the evacuation on the 8th, 9th of January. Uh, will they get away with it? And I've tried to build it up as a suspense. Will they get away with it? Will they get away with it? Obviously, they bloody do. Uh, but it's, I, I'm trying to, to say that's how close it was. That No one knew what would happen. Well, the Turks had known that they were evacuating at this point, too. It was no surprise. No, no. The, 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 the Turks, uh, yeah, I, I do see what you mean. The Turks did know they were going to evacuate. And the, I've quoted a couple of people in it uh, that said, they're definitely going. We just don't know when. I don't think they're going now. This is a, this is at the Hellas second anniversary. Uh, second month. They didn't know specifically they were going on the 8th, 9th. Uh, they didn't. Because they'd have attacked. They did attack on the 7th and they'd been knocked back. And this is the problem. And I think uh, we'll talk about this perhaps a bit later. But th- there is a problem if you attack the, the British across open ground. And that's the Navy. I'll come back to that perhaps later. Uh, because the Navy will destroy you. Uh, that's if the remaining garrison don't destroy you. The, the Turks would open fire as soon as they knew. But the interesting thing is, it, this is how the silent periods work. Because I want you to put yourself now, you're in the frontline trench, Bob. Uh, you know about the silent periods. You know that silent doesn't mean gone. You know that if you say, I think I can hear them leaving, then your platoon sergeant or officer will say, right, let's send a patrol out and see what's happening. You know that might mean you'd be dead. So if you do have slight personal suspicions, Bob, you'd stay quiet, wouldn't you? Uh, absolutely. 
<laughs> well, unless you're a bloody lunatic. <laughs> uh, and of course, there are lunatics, but I think this is a substantial part of it. Uh, but as I always emphasize, and I hope I emphasize in the book, we don't know whether anybody realized, because I'm, there are no personal experience accounts that say they knew. But the only ones I've seen, Harvey Broadbent's ones has done some work, are uh, from middling officers, uh, captains and majors, and they, they certainly don't know. That's at Anzac, and then again at at Hellas. And when they do know, they open fire, but by then we've gone. Well, that's a feature of the war for the Turkish side, too, is, you know, to a large degree, it's a subaltern conflict. You know, we get the accounts, what few we have, from people in authority or from company-grade officers, but there's virtually no testimony from enlisted men. From the Turks, no. Right, right. No. there could have been, and I'm not saying that there wasn't, there might well have been a, you know, live and let live attitude. Let them go. Let them go or you'll be sent forward. And you would have been sent forward. If you're in the front line and uh, you, you hear something, you will be sent forward. Who else is going to be sent forward? They're not going to send the reserves, are they? They're going to send the frontline troops forward to see what's happening. And then you've got all the booby traps and they knew from the time, they knew there'd be booby traps. They knew, they, they've got mines in no man's land. I'd keep yep. quiet. I definitely would. So, but we don't know. We don't know because, as you rightly said, there is a dearth. In fact, there's not a dearth. There aren't any uh, other rank accounts from the Turks from the last stages of Helles or uh, Antak that I'm aware of that, that, that meet our requirement to know what was happening. Who would stand out for you among the British and Anzac commanders during the evacuation? Well, um, I'm conscious we've been talking a while, but I, I want, I'm going to mention uh, two names I've mentioned already, and then I want to mention another one who I just love. Uh, the first one is Charles Monroe. He stands out for me. He really does. Determin- We've done that. Determination, stick it to your point, swift analysis, and he was right, in my view. The other one is Brigadier General Brudenell White, the Australian. I think he played a blinder. I think it was his brains as a staff officer that uh, allowed people to get away. I think he is the man. If, they, if I had to pick one, it's him. Uh, but my favourite is Brigadier General James O'Dowder, and he was in charge of the embarkation from W Beach. And he's the one who had to sit there, sort everything out, that the wind is blowing, it's howling, the uh, part of the piers collapse, uh, then the lighters run into the other part, that, the, the floating bridge, and, and that's destroyed. Uh, somebody, they've got, uh, they've got huge uh, caves full of munitions that they've got fuses in, and they're going to set fire to them. And then, as one bloke says, a careless soldier accidentally lit them. Well, I think you and I would guess, and again, I'm only guessing, and also it's fun, and sometimes you're allowed to have fun. I'm guessing that somebody went in there for a fag out of sight. Oh, I'll just, <laughs> oh fuck. What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> anyway, that, that it starts burning. And uh, it's not the it, it's not the big one, and it doesn't go up. But he's got to worry about that. Then he can't find his senior officer, the lieutenant general, who's meant to be going off another beach in two. Doesn't and he's coming at all. And he writes this ludicrous. Uh, it's uh, the general's Maud, and he writes. Uh, he does this sort of poem: "Come into the lighter Maud, and come. <laughs> the fuse has long been lit. Come into the lighter Maud, and never mind your kit." And it goes on slightly more abusively. And I just think it's great. And eventually Maud appears. They jump onto the last lighters. Um, they just get off the beach. And just as they're going off the beach, explosive chambers, you know, the, the, the munition stores blow up. And one of the great things I ever found was uh, I was there and I'd seen this valley and I'd never known what it was. And I was there with a, a chap who'd served in uh, Afghanistan uh, Army. I was taking an army tour. And he said, what's this explosion chamber, Pete? What explosion chamber? And then suddenly the story, it was the cave that blown, the top had come out. And in the field I was stood in were all the rocks and boulders, huge boulders. That's why the farmer hadn't been able to reclaim. Wow. Can you imagine? That's that's history brought to life. And every time I go there now, I show, I I remember showing Matt, Matt, Matt McLachlan. I remember showing other historians. And and that's what I mean about you share things. It's now in everybody's tour. and And so it should be, because the more people who see and experience things like that, the better it is for all of us. You know, what do we take away from this whole thing? What do we take away from the evacuation? A hundred years, over a hundred years after it happened. 
Speaking as a civilian, I'm not sure there's much other than just general things that we should learn from in the sense of it informs our knowledge of the Great War, it informs our knowledge of militaristic. So for me, that's things like making a, a prompt decision. But, uh, that's Monroe. The inability of politicians to take responsibility at the right time, so they're willing to take it and thrust you into danger, but they're not willing to take a decision to, to, to rescue you. That I find still of use today. I may be slightly cynical there. I think it's uh, it's important to to look at uh, if you're military, you you look at uh, the how how they did it, the actual technique of it, the the sheer planning, the fact that planning is never wasted, the fact that there's this whole new technique of the collapsing uh, balloon technique, so that you fall in behind the you gradually disappear behind the outer the outer covering, if you like. Uh, all these things. The other thing you should take away is admiration for the courage and guts of all involved on both sides. That to me is, I think, whenever you're doing this, you should always think, thank God that wasn't me. Be because these people, I mean, that suffered a lot during this time. And, uh, and, and, you know, I might joke about the stress that Brigadier General Odada was under, but I wouldn't like to be under that stress. I mean, what you and I, Bob, consider to be stress, he would laugh at with a cheery laugh. Well, you know, we're bringing our interview to a close. And as we do, there's, there's two questions that we like to ask of our guests, which kind of take us off topic. First, where do you go from here? What's, what's your next project? I know you said you had two in the works right now. Well, uh, uh, the, my, my big project was also with uh, Matt McLaughlin. And it's, it's really how it happens. I do, I do a, a weekly podcast called uh, Peter Hart's Military History, which I'm very proud of, mainly First World War, but other things as well. And that's my main, that's an ongoing thing. And that's been very helpful. During, I started it before COVID, but it's been very helpful. The other thing is I've been working hard. Uh, I, my next book is uh, on the South Not Cesars. I, I did 50, 60 interviews with a, uh, an artillery regiment called the South Not Cesars, they're 107 regiment and it's basically mass observation so the interviews are eight to 16 hours long and i, I and the, and the books basically their lives stitched together by me i don't actually do that much and that book has been delayed by covid but it's out in january and then the book i'm working on as it because as i said working authors it, it's that that was a year ago uh, so was evacuation what i'm actually doing now is uh, writing a book on the Fife and Fofar Yoni, who were a tank, were a second Fife and Fofar Yoni, who were in tanks. And, oh, God, Bob, it's unbelievable. They're Sherman, so plenty of your American listeners will be well aware of the Tommy Cookers, as, as, as a British – well, the Germans called them when we were in them. Um, yeah. And it's just so visceral. Um, when, when, when a shell hits a tank, it's awful. And uh, there's all sorts of – it's been an amazing experience for me uh, because – they, they were younger than the Glippy veterans, and their their stories are so vivid and and so terrible and and so thought provoking, and and the courage that they show just ordinary people doing extraordinary things. So that'll be coming out the year after. And of course, I'm working on. You have to, you, you know, this. I'm also pitching for my next book, and I've got absolutely obsessed with the Sudan. Uh, not uh, from the 1882 Egyptian campaign through to the the, the efforts to relieve Gordon. He seems to have needed a lot of relieving that, Gordon, uh, yeah. in Khartoum. And then uh, the 1898 uh, campaign. Uh, and that, I think, is called Blood and Sand at the moment, although that may be just me swearing again. Blood and Sand. <laughs> but um, but that, I think authors, most authors will tell you, you're not just working on one thing. You're working on the last book, the book that's nearly finished, and then, of course, you're pitching and working on the next book. It, it never ends, really. It goes on in a circle, as a working author, anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. I believe you, for an academic author, it's not much different. So we have to we have to teach in between, so. Well, I'm retired. <laughs> Hooray! Yeah, good on that. Good on that. Listen, what, what else, the second question, what are you reading, are you viewing, or otherwise doing that you might want to recommend to our listeners? Well, I, I do recommend the podcast. Sorry, I, I should have left that to that. Peter Hart's Militaristic Podcast. You'll find it on all formats. Uh, and uh, like this podcast series, I think it's a it's a great medium for historians. Uh, and and uh, we try and bring uh, – there's two of us do it, myself and Gary Bain, and we try and bring a bit of humour into it as well. Uh, as you can tell, I, I try and do that. Uh, not when things are really awful, but uh, uh, so that's been going on. And uh, what else have I done? Well, I'm in a rock band, so I'm I'm, I'm working on the next album. Uh, we're uh, oh. we, we can't play live, so we're, uh, the we're working. What's the band? They're called Those Naughty Lumps. 
we were a comedy punk band. And because um, I'm old, uh, people who are in the mid 60s are punks. People don't realize, yeah. but that's what they are. Uh, people yeah. in their 70s are hippies. Uh, people in their 80s are teddy boys. And it's quite interesting. But I'm in my mid 60s, and so I'm a punk. Uh, I never did that. I always had long hair. Now I haven't got any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, but so I'm doing that. Um, I, I, my main reading that I'm enjoying is on the Sudan. I can't tell you how exciting it is. Uh, uh, reading the books of the people at the time, um, and uh, I just 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 for me. When I read my first book, I didn't actually know who was going to win some of the battles. <laughs> Can you remember that time when you were reading about the American <laughs> Civil War and you didn't know who was going to win a battle? Do you, do you remember yeah. how exciting it was? I have to go back to my my. Gosh, my grade school years for that, I think. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Well, the Sudan had just yeah. never cropped up for me, and uh, there's a there was a Suakim uh, part of the campaign. I just didn't know. Never knew. I didn't know. They said uh, they started fighting. I thought, who's going to win this one? Then I don't know. <laughs> I do now. <laughs> that, that, that golden period never comes again, does it? Unless you get no. seen off. <laughs> no, I'm not looking. For, I'm starting to go there. I'm not looking forward to it. So. <laughs> no, me neither. Well, yeah, Peter Hart. Listen, thank you again. I mean, this has really been a joy, and thanks for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Well, I've really enjoyed it. You've been great, and if ever you want to have me again, I'll be delighted. I'll be on time this time. I promise. <laughs> like, no, I don't know. It gives us something more to talk about. <laughs> well, listen to all of our listeners on behalf of the New Books Network. This is your host Bob Wintermute with our guest Peter Hart. Thanking you for listening to new books in military history.